My name is Lawrence Rosenberg, and this is the Alpha Human Podcast. We have an incredible couple with us today, Tom and Jen Satterley. Tom Satterley is a U.S. Army veteran who spent 20 years as a member of the elite special forces unit known as Delta Force. His first combat mission was the Battle of Mogadishu, the 18-hour firefight in Somalia that left 18 American soldiers dead and 73 wounded and was immortalized in the film Black Hawk Down. Tom went on to serve in every major U.S. conflict where the U.S. Special Forces were deployed from Somalia and Bosnia to Afghanistan and Iraq, including being an integral part of Operation Red Dawn, the mission that led to the capture of Saddam Hussein. While in Iraq, Tom also led a 10,000-person task force and was in charge of protection for President Bush while he was in country. After retiring as a command sergeant major, the highest rank an enlisted soldier can achieve, Tom co-founded an elite military contracting firm to train the next generation of special operations warfighters. Jen Satterley is a filmmaker and photographer, and she was director of film and photography at the special ops training company Tom founded, where she was responsible for shooting large-scale military training exercises. Jen was fully embedded with the Navy SEALs and the Green Berets filming realistic training missions before deciding to dedicate all her time to healing veterans and their families suffering the effects of post-traumatic stress. Together, Tom and Jen are the co-founders of the All Secure Foundation, which serves special operation combat veterans and their families to help them heal from the psychological toll of war. Tom and Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. What a warm welcome. Yeah, thank you for thank that. Thank you. <laughs> there you go, I was practicing that all day. <laughs> Um, honestly, it, it's such an honor to have you both here. Um, I read your book, Tom, and uh, I got to say it made a huge impact. And it made a huge impact and was profound in many ways, um, not just because you give a true glimpse at the harrowing nature, uh, the shock and awe, but the, the visceral nature of combat and war and what it does to somebody. But you also gave a window into your soul and into how that kind of violence affects someone as tough as you and, uh, and your men. And, you know, I, I think it absolutely changed the way I view uh, you know, many of the, the heroes in the special ops community that I look up to, uh, knowing how, how human they are. And so I just wanted, you know, an incredible book. I really appreciate that. I, that was my hope was to capture the reality, not the war stories, but the reality of what the human has to go through, you know, what it does to you and what you have to do to get through it. And I, I think, you know, Steve Jackson's a really great co-author. He got it there. Um, you know, I'm definitely not a writer. I had things in my life I, I, I got lucky enough to go do and was able to take part in. Um, wow, he was really, really great at, at capturing 
what I wanted to say. So I'm and glad. Really, it, yeah, and he really does capture your voice. I mean, it's it's seamless. It's it's it really it's an amazing story. Um, so I guess I want to get started, and I'll, I'll throughout the the conversation, I'll I'll bring in some quotes from the book to kind of guide us through where you know where I'd like to go with this. But um, I really want to start off where you know you started having the I guess the inspiration to want to not just join the military, but uh, become part of special ops, right? And, and there's this quote, you said that the thought of being one of America's best appealed to that part of me that was always trying to prove that I was strong enough and good enough. And so I wanted to kind of delve into that. I mean, what, going back, what inspired you to, to not just join the military, but take it to that next level? Um, I know you mentioned something about uh, the, the special forces um, uh, uh, creed, de oppresso liber. Um, so I'll, I'll leave that with you. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I tell the story about how I joined the military, how I decided to be a Green Beret, and then stumbled into, you know, actually getting into Delta. Joining the Army was, was one of those however long it takes to drive from Columbus, Indiana to uh, Indianapolis. <laughs> it, was, it was about an hour drive. My friend was back from basic training. His head was bald. You know, I had long hair probably. And uh, we're going to a John Cougar concert, right? We're in Indiana. It's a, it's a summer. Right. We're going to a John Cougar concert. What's, what says America and join the Army other than that? And he was telling me all about basic training. Um, he was going on his way to Germany for a couple of years, and I'd never been out of Indiana. Uh, so in that hour drive, he had talked me into joining the, joining the army. I had no idea what I was going to do. And so when I went to the recruiters right away, it was, it was, I want to be a doctor or a medic or whatever, you know, I was studying that, you know, and they're like, Hmm, yeah. You ever thought about combat engineer? You know, so instantly I was sold on the combat engineer. You get to blow stuff up. You get to build stuff. You know, it's great. Of course they had a quota to fill. So, you know, I joined for four years to get college money and uh, get out, go, go to college. I was, going to give four years. If they would have given me all the money, I probably would have done two years and got out, but never had aspirations for the military. I made fun of my brother for joining um, between his junior and senior year. He went to basic training. His senior year, he had that haircut, you know, that, that basic training haircut. So right. I was making fun of him. I'm two years behind him. So I'm, I'm cool. I'm in, you know, what freshman in high school and making fun of my senior brother about his haircut. And uh, yeah, joined the army. So it, it my Three years in Germany, introduced to a Hungarian, my platoon sergeant was a former Hungarian sergeant in the army, you know, so he had different ideas of what being a soldier was. And he took us to several different um, training events that really sparked me. We went to French commando school. Um, that was a lot better than what I was doing in the regular army. Wow. Um, uh, I got to compete with a, a thousand different soldiers and I, and I won the slot. I had one single slot to go to German Ranger School and I got to go to German Ranger School and he took us to platoon confidence training put on by uh, Green Berets down in Bad Tolts, Germany. So I had a different taste in my life and my mouth for what I wanted to do. Plus one of my best friends at the time had a picture of his father holding him wearing his dad's Green Beret as a baby in his arm. And he was like, my dad was a Green Beret in Vietnam. I'm going to be a Green Beret. And I adopted his dream. Mm. He left Germany a year before I did, and I adopted his whole life dream. Like I'm going to be a Green Beret now. I don't know why, but that looks cool, and this uh, the training sounds awesome. 
And so, you know, I reenlisted just to get back to Fort Bragg and went through special forces assessment selection and made that and went through the qualification course for six months and made that. Um, and then I'm in language school and, you know, it was funny. I look back now and I'm still friends with that person and he had finally reconnected with his father and found out that that was all a lie. His father was never a green beret. So, so I got into the special forces based on a lie. Um, and so did, you know, so did he. And, uh, but I guess that doesn't matter, but that was just an interesting turn of life for him uh, just recently, I think last year. And so I'm in language school trying to learn Persian Farsi and a couple of guys that had gone to the qualification course with me that I didn't know where they were from. They came to my class one day on Fort Bragg and they said, hey, you know, you need to call this number. It's, it's for the recruiters for, for Delta. You should call them. I'm like, okay, is that better than this? He goes, oh yeah, it's a lot better. We think you have what it takes. So, uh, yeah, once you call the number. So I called the recruiter, he had paperwork ready, gave me a PT test, and I, and I you know, got the go-ahead to go to selection uh, in the spring of 91. So, okay. So I, that's the guy I remember from the book um, who just kind of like appeared and mm -hmm. said something along the lines after kind of critiquing, you know, how you were doing your, you know, uh, doing the exercise that you were involved in. Uh, said something along the line when I think when you snap back at the guy, he said something along the lines of I've killed a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, something like then he yeah. just disappeared, right? He was <laughs> that guy that showed up later. <laughs> one of one of the two. And, right. Uh, so he, he shows up later and um and essentially yeah gives you gives you this card and says uh uh you know call call um call this uh number now right yeah and you're like, now, okay, I better do it now. But what I'm wondering is, do you have to be tapped up in order to join uh, SFOD? Or, no. or, or is no, that's, it, that's the special operations apply? Yeah, there's, there are some requirements of rank and time and service and age. Other than that, they don't care. Everybody's welcome. And I, I, I emphasize that to people. Everybody's welcome. People who don't try, that's where, I came up. That's where I, I live by the greatest fairs of fair to try. Well, I would have gone to selection, but I probably wouldn't have made it. <laughs> You'll never know, you know. Those who have tried and failed, those who have gone back and failed, gone back a third time if they're lucky and made it, you know. So we want guys who don't quit. We've always wanted uh, – nobody looks for angels. We look for the guys that, you know, the right guy for the right job. And you were really young at that point. Oh, was, um, yeah. And you got way too up. young to be. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was way too young and immature to be um, in an organization with that much power. That's for sure. But <laughs> they, they know how to manage it. They know how much power you can have in that organization. They wrangle you in and uh, they beat it into you. They train you so well um, that everything in my life was muscle memory. Everything that I did was basically, I had done it so often that I just reacted. So you know, at work. And then of course the rest of life follows with that, how you react to everything else. But uh, it was an amazing organization to be in. Um, you know, it wasn't perfect. Nothing's perfect. We're all human and there's people, there's people involved in everything, but mm -hmm. I couldn't have gone to a better location. I couldn't have been luckier to be with the people I was with and to learn from, um, from around the world, different walks of life. And it surprised me every day different people would show up from uh, OTC after they made selection. And you start making fun of the new kids coming in, but really it's you're terrified that 
here come the new studs on my heels my entire career. Right. And, yeah. and so that whole never quit attitude and just try anything, you know, uh, got me through that. It wasn't anything special other than the fact that I chose to not quit. What's the difference between um, Delta and, and the rest of the uh, special operations uh, community, whether it's Navy SEALs or, or Rangers or Green Berets, but, but in, in, actually in particular, you, are, you had joined the U.S. Army Special Forces. You were, you were working on uh, qualifying as a Green Beret when you got tapped up to go into Delta. So what's the, what's the difference between uh, Delta and the Green Berets? Um, the, the obvious answer is, is the mission. You know, um, the Green Berets go in and do a multitude of missions, whether it's nation building or teaching, you know, deliberate the oppressed. Um, so they go in and they do nation building. They also have special, you know, a special section that has gone in and done the special stuff just in case we couldn't get there in time. You know, they're, uh, they're Charlie teams. But our selection, I think, is what sets us apart our selection and our psychological evaluation process, whatever magic that they have and hold there, it works. And it's worked since the beginning and they've only improved upon it. And they've only removed a couple of things from selection since the beginning, since its inception. And it's because, not because of political pressure, even though we've had political pressure to change things in the past, they never bowed to it. It was only, they only removed things that didn't make it fair for everyone or something that could be trained later if it was a, if it was a problem to get people in and you could train you up for it later than you had until not the end of selection like swimming used mm. to be you had to pass a hundred meter swim test in boots and be to use without drowning now the reason they did that was you know selections in west virginia crossing a lot of swollen creeks somebody had died up there during selection crossing a creek one time so it's a safety thing and so they argued, well, we want you to get more people who can't swim in because you're really cutting out a large number of people who can't swim. And it's a trainable skill. So we moved it to the end of, say, operator training course, six months after. If you make selection and you can't swim by the end of the six-month course, then you're not going to make it because the plan is two-thirds water. You're bound to end up in water sometime. Right. And nobody wants a good person who can't swim in a combat situation So um, when you're out there alone. So they haven't changed much of selection and only, only when it made sense and made it more fair. Um, they have an age limit. So you have to be a certain minimum age. It's still pretty young for the, for the things you do, but it's a lot more mature than the 19 year old. You know, you're, you're 23 is a minimum. And, uh, and so you're a little bit more mature. You've been through one um, cycle of uh, enlistment already or on your second enlistment mm -hmm. and you have to be an E5 or above. So you're not getting those younger, crazier people. You're getting more maturity in there. And, uh, and then the, the psychological process that you have to go through and the selection process to get there really weeds out those that you don't want. And then a six-month course with the peer evaluations, the trainers, operator trainer course after that, after selection, they're watching you again. And then you're on probation for two more years after that before you really can start to breathe. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think I ever took a breath at work. Every day I drove into work, I was hoping that the gate would open and let me in. You know, you never know the day that you're just not good enough. Um, and if you're not, you're not. And that's just to be fair about it. There's a lot of hurt feelings. Oh, Delta's the best. No, SEALs are the best. You know what? Depends on the mission. But honestly, I, I will stand by it and say that I think our people are more uh, 
psychologically evaluated and more mature um, across the board. Interesting. I mean, you talk about in the book, you say that we were taught that we could accomplish anything and practice visualizing winning and never failing. If for some reason there was a chance we might fail, we visualize how to overcome the problem. We were invincible. No one could touch us. So, I mean, that's an incredible statement, right? So, so just what did you learn in uh, operator's training course in OTC? What did they teach you? Well, they taught you everything to be a warrior that you needed. And they taught you so repetitively that you would do it at least 10,000 times. I mean, you would, everything you did would be repetitive over and over the same, and you wouldn't do it wrong. You would do it slow and perfect. And you would start out that way. Smooth is fast. You know, oh, fast is fast. No, smooth, slow is fast. If you do it right and you do it right every time, by the time you have to do it under pressure, it's just a reaction. It's just muscle memory. And that, that frees up my brain to look around the room, threat, I've already got my gun out and I'm already seeing what else is going on because my muscle memory is doing this. I don't even know what's happening over here. My, my brain's already over here working on three problems down the road. It's like playing chess. So I think they taught me to play chess and not checkers in life with the ability to think ahead, think through problems, expect the worst. So when it happens, you're ready for it. And again, another thing, I'm just, as I talk, I think of things that have almost ruined my life. You know, that perfection-driven aggression of getting things done right and, you know, treating the kids like they're Delta Force soldiers as well when the dishes are dirty. It's like, oh, all right, guys, you know, I attack every problem that way because it becomes who you are. And after six months of basically shooting and close quarters battle, which is shooting while moving through a closed building, um, you know, and everything else along the way that day with, with physical fitness, and with all the other specialties that we do, it's really shoot, move, and communicate. And you did it for six months straight. And then after that, you did it for two years. And I mean, I was at my two-year, you know, rookie thing when Samaya kicked off. And I literally felt like I could have done anything. I wasn't afraid. I mean, now at that, at that age, I don't think I, I even considered fear. I don't remember. Have I talked about considering fear in Somalia? I mean, I talk about it a lot later in life, mm -hmm. but as I think back to what I thought then, I thought I was invincible. I thought we're so good. I'm so confident in my skills. You asked me to go do something, you know, in a foreign country, in a house I don't know. Okay, I felt good doing it. Were you that way going in, or did they make you that way? No, they made me that way. I, uh, I've had self-confidence issues most of my life. I mean, growing up as a child, I don't think I had those issues. I just think that I was just a kid growing up. I don't think I considered much past what I'm going to do today, you know? Um, but they beat it into you. They, it just, you do it so much and you want to do your job so well. And I was around so many professionals that, you know, it's like being on a pro football team and you're looking at all the other players, they do different jobs and man, they're great at them. And, and what, what a place to be but it also takes its toll on you as I'm not good enough. Wow. So I have those emotions of I'm not being good enough. However, I was driven to try to be better. So I'm always working that way to, Oh, I'm not good enough. I'll get good enough. I'll get good enough. I'll, I'll run 25 miles today. If that's what it takes. 
you know? So we would do sadistic things to ourselves while, while working out or while shooting, you know, center blocks, carry those a mile and shoot. Now go another mile and shoot just to elevate your heart rate, elevate your breathing, wear your hands out to simulate the stress of combat. So when I shoot, it's not, Oh, it's not perfect. It's, I'm shaking and disheveled and I can still shoot right between your eyes because we did it that way. We just thought of everything horrible we could do in life and we put ourselves through it to be, so when it happened, we'd be good at it. So you talk about the, the psychological piece and how you're evaluated. In the, um, in the book, you say the psych evaluations weren't just to determine a potential operator's moral compass. They were also designed to determine who, among even elite soldiers, could perform the duties required of a unit warrior. One of those tasks was the ability to kill without hesitation. Various studies have shown that even in a pitched battle, the vast majority of combatants will not actually shoot at the enemy. So how does, how does Delta help you overcome that? How did, you know, cause that's clearly, and, and maybe, you know, maybe that ends up um, being one of the side effects later on. Um, the fact that they've been able to do that to you, but, or you've been able to use what, what it is they, they're giving you to be able to do that. But I'm curious, how, how do you, how do you get over that? Uh, just muscle memory, just doing it without thought. The army, the, the, the military in all has gotten better at it. Um, read, read the book on killing and it's talking about, you know, you used to shoot at bullseyes and then, and then it shaped to human shapes. And then it went to actual people. I mean, at work, we were shooting digital photography, full size pictures of the bad guys and terrorists mm -hmm. dressed up. Um, every night we'd go to simunitions and go through, you know, force on force and shoot each other with paintballs basically, but they hurt a lot more. And uh, with bad guys, and then turn the corner because we're always entering rooms towards each other. So you're shooting, running down a hallway, and there's a gun. There's a guy with a gun. Uh, better be not my guy. I, I have to assess so much. And we did that so often on the range, in the house, with the computer systems, you know, where you, you see situations fall, pop up and you engage. And if you ever really shot a hostage more than a couple times on paper, Man, that's a failed, that's a failed national mission that the president would send us on. You were gone. You were gone for a year. So you didn't do it. You took that extra second of thought before you engaged. After they, after they took away thought of, is there a threat in their hand? Is there a threat in their hand? I, I never looked at faces when I entered rooms. I went in a room and I look at hands. If there's nothing in your hands, I don't care what you're doing. Right. I'm going to go to my sector. I'm going to finish my point of the domination and anything in that room along the way that has anything in their hands. That's all I'm scanning for is hands. If there's something in your hands, you're dead. And I'm on to the next set of hands. You know, if there's something threatening in your hands, it was, uh, it was muscle memory to pull the trigger and look for the next thing. So you're so busy doing what you're taught to do over and over and over again. You don't even think about it in our room, go left or right, you know, go opposite the person in front of you. You know, here's my point of domination. Here's my sector. My weapon's up. Oh, there's a threat. I'm off safe. I'm firing. I'm off, you know, and I'm, I'm done. I don't even think about it. What's my next task? Where am I getting out of this room? What's the next room? Keep going until it's over with. Until I hear the words all secure, you know, I'm not stopping and no one's going to stop. And you're constantly assessing, assessing like a computer the entire way through. Hands, hands, hands. Uniform. 
there's a gun. Okay, uniform now. Oh, it's another operator or a low vis operator wearing civilian clothes that threw on a vest to come in, you know, to help out. There's so much more to think about that you're not thinking about it being a human. You're thinking about the mechanics of threat. Is that the proper threat? It's dead. I'm on to the next thing. And that carries you for a while. You know, it carries you through the mission and it carries you for the years. And then when I got out and started looking back on it and then you stop and you slow down and I'm 10 years out, retired. It's like, mm -hmm. wow, those are humans attached to those hands somewhere. And there's even faces. I don't, I don't know till later. And sometimes their faces are so disgusting because of what we had to do to them. You know, when they had some in their hands, it wasn't always, you know, sometimes you shoot the hands first because that's what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. And you have to finish, you know, in case they have body armor or another threat because shooting someone in the hands doesn't really take away the threat. You have to destroy it. So you never saw the real person. You saw the aftermath. You know, you saw the hands, the weapon, and then the aftermath of a dead human. And that comes back to haunt you. Just, it doesn't haunt me in a way that um, I made mistakes. It haunts me in the way that those are human lives. And I didn't think about it until so many years later. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's incredible. Counterintuitively, um, unless you're going through what you're going through, you would think that, oh, it's just enough that, you know, these are bad people. These are evil people. The, you know, these, you know, they're criminals, they're terrorists. And that's all you need to know to do the job. And clearly, uh, that's just not the case. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's really, um, really it, powerful. And we so point one time to where we had a new guy on our team. I was no longer the new guy and we were training and we entered the room just to see what the new guys were going to do. We entered the room and one of the targets had a knife, you know, and I hear this, drop it, drop it, drop it. And I turned and I walked over and I go, what are you doing? So he's got a knife and I pull my gun up and shot him in the head and the paper blows everywhere. And I go, we're not cops. We're on to the next room already, okay? We're here for a reason. And it's not to get bogged down in this. We're hostage rescue. So any threat is dead. We're on to save, you know, those that aren't supposed to be there. And it was like a, a teaching lesson, but really, I mean, wow. People are always trying to second guess you. Why don't you shoot them in the legs? Why don't you wound them? Why don't we get safer bullets or safer guns? I'm like, you know, and you tell them, You'll never understand it and just thank a soldier for that because right. we don't want people to go through what we've had to go through. It's just, it's not meant that way. So it should be meant to understand that, you know, that judgment on people. That's what a lot of people worry about. A lot of soldiers worry about is the judgment later. You know, in Vietnam, the baby killers in every war has people who have been put down for mm -hmm. doing what they do, but from people who don't understand it you know, that don't understand that they're living and the freedoms given to them by people who have to go do the disgusting thing that they really don't want to do either. Right. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's easy to criticize, um, when, you know, you're, you're safe and you're sound and you're living a, an easy life while others are, are sacrificing theirs so that you can do that. Um, you are part of the force of Delta operators, Army Rangers, Night Stalkers that were sent to Somalia in the 90s to hunt uh, the warlord Muhammad uh, Adid and his aides. Uh, and this is what turns into the Battle of Mogadishu, which was 
uh, unbeknownst to me before I looked deeper into it, the longest sustained firefight in, in the U.S. military since the Vietnam War up to that time. Like, uh, hey. <laughs> I mean, just unbelievable. And by the time that battle ended, you were a changed man. Can you give us a boil down of what happened and, and how you survived? Yeah, my, my segment of that 18 hours was basically, in a nutshell, was fast roping into the unknown, 90 feet under fire and realizing we're outside of where we're supposed to be. We're outside the security zone. So my team has to take down a house along the way and then fight our way back in past the Rangers into the target. Um, it was so already heavily under fire and then the brownout was so bad that um, we were put way out. I had to fight our way in, finally made it to the target. The detainees were cuffed and in line. So I, I got to work in searching and, and you know, you could hear the volume of fire picking up, but we're still cracking jokes, you know, I hope we're home for dinner, you know, and I hope that lobster and steak or something, but mm -hmm. you know, we're cracking jokes and, and talking, you know, lining up detainees. Um, a five ton got blown up outside. And that was one of the awakening moments a bit, but I'm still like, oh, okay, well, you know, things happen, right? We're, we're going to take some hits. It's a five ton. I don't know who's getting injured or what. Mm -hmm. um, we're actually lining up, standing in a courtyard, I'm standing there with a, a garbage bag full of Somalia money. I was going to take it back. It was a whole garbage bag full, probably worth $2. I don't know. And I'm waiting to get on the, on the convoy to go out. And there, I'm standing at one of those thin metal gates. It's a green, rusty gate in a courtyard of this house. And I'm waiting to go out to the street and load up on the vehicles. And the ranger sitting on the ground, leaning against the gate. His neck just explodes with a bullet come through the gate and right through his neck. And I realized it was, it was getting heavier and heavier. And that's when I heard an RPG uh, launch again. I've been hearing them, but this one kind of launched over us. And I looked up and saw it hit the helicopter. And, and, and six months started spinning and flying off to the north and west. And I was like, okay, that's going to change things, right? I'm still a young guy, but I knew that was going to change something. Um, you know, I, I threw the cash in the sewer system. And, and, you know, there was a metal grate on the ground. I threw the cash in there. I remember slashing the tires of this car that was in the courtyard. And, uh, you know, that way nobody would follow us. And then I knew we turned and we headed, headed uh, east and then to turn north to go find the crash site. And I could not believe how many Somalis were already lined up on both sides, a block each side, shooting at us every time we crest, crossed an intersection. It was a, a huge firefight. It was, it was just, I was in amazement of how people were crossing the street with how many bullets were flying. I think back now and everybody when they're afraid shoots high when you're untrained. So I'm assuming a lot of those bullets were going just over our heads and high because they were scared of running and shooting. And, and thank goodness for untrained people. Right. And I remember when we turned to go north and we went about a half a block and I jumped out in the middle of the street on this, this boulder in the middle of the road and started shooting towards the crash site and there was people running across the street. And, and me and another guy across the street from C1 Earl were shooting up the street. And I looked at him, I looked, I started shooting, and I looked back, and he was already being drugged away by two people. Um, he had shot, been shot right in the head. And I didn't know it. I just I thought, oh, Earl's injured, you know? Shoot, what happened? We pushed up the street and found the crash site and took down the house with people in it and then just set up that entire night. And about maybe 11 or 12 at night, I, I really don't know what time it was, 
we were out of ammo, out of water. The house had been blown up down. Um, the walls had been blown down around us in multiple places. Um, we had two rangers who were in our courtyard bleeding out. Um, I think, I don't know if the ranger had died across the street yet, who they were working on throughout the night. And I didn't know if we were going to get resupplied and I could hear the convoy under fire the entire night trying to get to us, the loud volume of the heavy guns shooting. And I asked my team leader, I was like, are, uh, you think they're going to make it? <laughs> and, you know, being the team leader he was, he was like, hmm. I remember he just like, hmm, I hope so. And he turned and walked off and I was like, oh shit. I was looking for a little more than that. But I kind of, I probably had a magazine left. And I did, and we got resupplied just shortly after that, thank goodness. But I remember taking my knife out, putting it on the bed, and I remember thinking, I'm not gonna make it. I mean, I knew I wasn't gonna make it. And so I just kinda, I felt calm, like, oh, okay, let's do this. And let's just take out as many Somalis as we can and save as many American lives as possible. And then I won't have to worry about it. I won't know the moment it happens. I didn't wanna be laying there with like one of the guys screaming in pain. I mean, that, that scared me, to be wounded and screaming in pain. But to be dead didn't. And that's, I think that's when my life changed. I felt that calm of, okay, I'm dead, right? What's death? I mean, it's better than this right now. So um, I can look back and kind of know that that's the moment that my switch flipped to whatever. I mean, I, mean, I didn't, I mean, when you, you give up on life, it's uh, it's kind of, I don't want to say comforting, but I mean, you know, because giving up on life sounds a bit different to different people. But mm -hmm. when you figure you're done anyway, not at your own hand, but you can't do anything about it, it's kind of it's kind of relaxing to like give into it, and and that, uh, I mean, that helped me out the rest of the night. And then thank goodness we got resupplied, and then uh, I don't know, maybe just before the sun was coming up we started hearing people talking and a vehicle getting real close right. and a couple of the armored vehicles had made it to us, you know, that, and 10th mountain division soldiers were everywhere, both sides of the street to stand. I was like, I remember in awe, like, wow, they're all out in the street in mass numbers. I guess mass numbers of people scare people off. I don't know, but they were in the streets and walking and they were getting shot at. And I'm like, you don't want to stand there. I remember the first thing one guy walked in, he's like, Hey, you got any dip? I'm like, Wow, you guys just strolling in here like it's a training event, man, you know? And uh, I remember telling one of you, better get out of the street, man. There's been a lot of fire, and he's laying down by a car. I go, that's not a good place. We've had two or three people hit there. And and, and uh, he starts engaging down the street, so I knew somebody would pop back up again. And I knew the little birds were coming, and every time they came, that's where they dumped all their hot brass. You could hear them coming, just rocking the miniguns and all that hot brass falling right down on that Tenth Mountain soldier. He jumped up and was screaming, thinking he was getting shot because they're hard and they, they're hot. <laughs> and he took off running. I was like, I know it happened to me earlier in the night. <laughs> That's why I knew it was going to happen. But, uh, you know, we, we got the, use the vehicles to get the, uh, the helicopter frames off the pilot's bodies, which is why we wouldn't leave. They was trapped underneath the helicopter. We got most of their bodies out put them on top of the vehicles. And when they said, load up, we're going to drive out to the convoy, get into the convoy and the convoy will take you to, uh, I, I didn't know. I didn't know the Packy stadium is where we're going to go, but I didn't know at the time. And I opened up the back of that armored, armored personnel carrier and it was so full. They pulled it back shut and locked it. And I remember thinking, 
there's a there's an army adage where you know how many people can you fit into any vehicle and the answer is always one more there's always one more it was never that it was not that day and so they come up with a new plan we're going to run out or well we're going to walk out the vehicles will go along with us and they'll you, you will use that for cover right yeah as soon as we started and the bullets started flying those vehicles took off and we were all like well let's take off running with them and so we ended up trying to run out and it was just engaging the whole time shooting and uh at everything you could see finally made it back got on a humvee you guys get on that when you get on that when i was with a guy from one team and another from my team there was three of us from the unit in the back of that humvee and those two humvees took off and i thought all right we're out of here man we're shooting at everybody on the streets they're running around they're crazy and we finally passed that that 21 November Road, I think was the name of it, to where a different clan had ruled the city, and they're friendly to us. Right. And uh, the shooting slowly stopped after that point. It was like, okay, all right. You know, we crashed through the burning tires. You know, we made our way back to the back of the airfield, and there was nobody else there. There was no one else with us. And I didn't know where they were. Our radios were dead. And so I waited, I don't know, 30 minutes maybe. And... Uh, nobody showed up so we drove around the airfield back to the hangar and that's when i saw like 12 bodies laid out on the street covered in ponchos and we pulled in and i saw um vehicles everywhere just soaked in blood and and and, uh, and the smell of bleach and sand in the air as, as the sun was coming up heating up the tarmac and nobody was there and i just remember uh grabbing more ammo and started cleaning my weapon and uh trying to, it was screaming out at people that were like, what's going on? Everybody had gone out that entire night. So, um, I, I found out that they were, we, I found out what last year, a 10th mountain soldier found me on social media. And I think I posted a picture of me sitting on the back of that, that Humvee and it had, you know, some numbers written on it that somebody recognized said that was my vehicle. Mm-hmm. And I said, I've always wondered why we went to the back gate and everybody else went somewhere else, you know? He said, we got lost. <laughs> oh, wow. We got lost. So I don't know. I mean, I don't, I'm in the back shooting people. I don't know where we're going. I just want to get out of there. And um, he goes, we got lost and separated. So we just took off. And uh, I go, well, thank God. Thank God you didn't stop anywhere. And uh, yeah, so years later, reconnected with that guy and found out that, you know, they'd gotten lost. And, but it worked out for us. Before we started to go back out, helicopters started coming back in from the Pakistani stadium, dropping people off at the airfield and going back and picking them up. We just took the long route home. And uh, and that's when we started finding out the real toll of what had happened, how many people we had lost, lives of people, you know, prisoners of war, taken hostage and uh, and missing. And uh, that's that's when anger, anger set in. You know, a fight's a fight. But dragging bodies and burning bodies and dismembering your friends changed it for me. It was it was no longer a fair fight. I mean, they, they brought in another squadron and sent us home because they thought that if we went out, it would be very, very bad. And they were probably right. Mm-hmm. It would have been one of those bad situations. Um, and, you know, that's probably up to good leadership not to send high-trained, angry men back into the, the hornet's nest, you know, to do more damage because it probably would have been been a lot worse yeah um and in between all of that if you read the book you, you'll just you'll you'll it's just and you can you, you're talking about it now um obviously in reading the in reading the book i know how hard 
it was for you to ever talk about this. So the fact that you can even talk about it now, the way you're talking is, is test is testament to Jen and uh, the, you know, what you guys have been doing with the foundation and we'll get to that soon. But I think, you know, you have, you have to, you have to read the book to truly understand what you went through in those 18 hours, because a lot of RPGs, a lot of bullets, a lot, you know, a lot of death that was going on around you. And it's, it is a miracle that, you know, you guys, you guys survived. And in the book, you say surviving war and its aftermath was all about hatred, anger, and unbelievable violence. I knew that from now on, in order to do my job right and survive, I would have to focus on those aspects, remove empathy and compassion for others, and I wouldn't feel the pain. So is this where now, you know, you start kind of uh, feeling the, you know, before it was, you know, this is great, I'm invincible, I could do anything, and, and now there's like a whole different perspective, and, and, and psychologically, is this where you start, you know, you start going down that slope? Yeah, definitely. I think the ideology of, of helping people change to the ideology of punishing bad people, right? Mm-hmm. Versus, what's your job? Why well, help people? You know, I think it changed to what's your job? I kill, I kill people that need killing. You know, it was, uh, I'm the guy you call when you want someone dead because they're bad. And that's kind of different. Look at your job, right? It's just Mm -hmm. what I focused on. Um, you know, I came in ideological. I'm going to take down those bullies and help those people and, you know, and and help them uplift themselves. And it just, uh, I ended up being in a job where we don't uplift anybody. We go in and we remove threats. We remove evil dictators and terrorists that want to cut your head off and slash your children up and you know in front of you and just because of who you are just because of what they've been taught you know about you Mm -hmm. and uh you have to be pretty pretty evil and violent yourself to meet that and i knew that if i let those emotions of losing all those friends um over overcome me that i would be worthless i thought i thought back then that was that was my thinking back then I needed to be a, you know, you see the culture, the military culture, the, the tattoos, the muscles, the guns, you know, uh, the beards and long hair. I'm going to kill things. It's like, man, that's quite a Halloween mask, you know, forever. And I wore it. I wore it my, uh, most of my adult life. And then um, while uh, later on, uh, while in Iraq, especially uh, Fallujah, you talk about Fallujah. And how much that reminded you of Mogadishu, um, how out of control things were, were there um, during the insurgency. You and your team were, were going out on hits every day, essentially being sent out to kill or capture targets, uh, insurgency leaders, bomb makers. And um, in the book, you say the unit's legacy was hostage rescue and taking down high value targets, whether... Um, whether terrorists, tyrants, or drug lords. We were built to take on a mission, complete it, and return home, not 10 missions a day, every day. And as the enemy increased their level of violence, so did we. A call would come in, the heavy metal would blast, so I guess you guys would now you know, turn on the music, and the, you know, you'd start downing those energy drinks, uh, and 
after, you know, after the others uh, had worked, uh, well, I guess after you and the others had worked yourselves into what you called a controlled frenzy, um, you said we were like sharks working ourselves into a, free, uh, into a feeding frenzy, predators and prey with blood in the water. Imagine living in fear, under relentless stress and anxiety, in a constant state of adrenaline, fueled, heightened awareness for 90 day stretches at a time. You get yourself amped up 10, maybe more times a day on death metal and caffeine and pill-induced rage. So this, this is, this is, I mean, this is happening while you're in Fallujah and, and probably many, you know, many other places. Um, it, it's amazing that you, you know, were in for as long as you were in and we're, and, and we're doing this. No wonder you've had, you know, so the, the damage that was going through, but at this point now, are you so lost in the moment that you, you, you can't, I mean, do you know that things are, are, are screwed up and that you don't want it to be that way? Or like, are you just 24 seven in a, in, you know, in a self-induced rage and running on that aggression in order to get the job done? I mean. Yeah. By, by Iraq, I was a leader. So I had a whole troop of pipe hitters like I was back then mm -hmm. that were just on the, on the beginnings of the 20 year war, you know? So, mm -hmm. and I know there's, I still have friends there that were there with me that are still there going to war. And I've been out 10 years. Going with their sons now. Going with their sons. Wow. I know fathers yeah. who have deployed and gone on hits with their sons. Wow. Um, oh man. So I don't think I knew it at all. It was to us, it was the culture to us is what we needed to do. And I had, I, it was just who I was. I became that. So it wasn't that I knew I needed to change. I thought this is me, you know, this is me. I'm a killer. This is what killers do. Uh -huh. And I had a whole troop of killers and they were such amazing men. I mean, all, my, my hardest job is to find the bad guys. Where are they? So I can release these men, you know, let's, let's go here. Let's destroy this guy's life. Here's another one. We woke up Christmas Day and the guys were bored. I went and dug through a pack and I go, who wants to go on a hit? I, I do. Here's a whole packet of people that need, you know, rolled up and talked to. So, all right, plan this one. Let's go. We did a Christmas Day hit right across the river. It was just, there were so many people to detain and question. And we'd work our way up and down different chains looking for Saddam, looking for different leaders. And it never ended. And so that's just what you did. You, you, you know, nobody was going to complain. They put me down one time for three days. My star major put me down for three days and said, you're combat ineffective. I couldn't sleep. Um, I was worried about some stuff at the time and I couldn't get any rest. And so my star major saw it. He's like, listen, yeah, I, I think he just wanted to go out on hits. So he goes, you're going to stay here. The doctor gave me, because uh, he took my place, but the doctor gave me some sleeping pills and he pulled out a bottle of, uh, I don't know, whiskey or something. I was crazy. He goes, this will help. And he gave me some else. He goes, this ought to knock you out for at least a good day and a half. And I think six hours later, I was up and walking around looking at the, in the talk, looking at what the missions and they were like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be better. I'm like, I can't sleep. And he said, all right, look, you're not going anywhere. Matter of fact, I don't want you in this room. So he put me down for three days just to sleep. It's probably the worst three days of my life. Wow. You know, my men are going out on hits and I'm not. I'm like, this. if, if something happens, I was going to explode. If something happened to my men and I wasn't out there, I would have exploded. So thank goodness it didn't. But 
that was literally my only break in the entire time I was there. It was that three days they put me down? Um, and honestly, I think he did three days because he wanted to go out and do some hits because he was tired of sitting in the office all the time. <laughs> and then, um, I mean, you're, you're so you're getting psychological damage, you're getting physical damage throughout this whole time. Um, and throughout the book, there are instances where you know you're you're, you're taking um, just tremendous uh, blows. You were blown up twice. Um, but still and, still those, those are still here with me. <laughs> so, but you continue to tough it out instead of asking for help because as you said, you, as you said, you didn't want to be ejected from the unit. Um, what you said, uh, and I'll quote, I realized that I had no one to talk to about this. I, I, I sure couldn't say anything to my men. I couldn't let them perceive me as anything less then strong and confident. Nobody wants a weak leader in combat. I couldn't tell my bosses or the unit psychiatrists because I feared I might get fired and I couldn't lay it on my family. Uh, either they wouldn't want to hear about it or I didn't want to worry my folks and, and, and my siblings. So it's like, um, I mean, is that the culture? I don't know if it's, was that the culture then? Is that still the culture now? that you just don't talk about this stuff? We still hear it. We hear it every day. And, and the story you just laid out about what I wrote in that book is so different to what we preach right now. Mm -hmm. And that book was written to show all my mistakes. You know, a lot of people, you're writing a book, you're writing a book, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, the way you read it. It's not about how cool I am. Um, right. And so I'm laying it all out there so people will see that, oh, those are true emotions. That's how I feel. Oh, I don't. Nobody did tell me that this sucks. We kick us out. Nobody told me that I'd be fired. Nobody. Or lose your clearance. Yeah, or, we tell ourselves that. Yeah. We tell ourselves that. So now we preach right. to people. It's like, look at what I did and listen to what we're telling you now. You know, you keep your body sharp. You know, your, your biceps aren't quite big enough. You go to the gym, you work them, right? So if you're having some issues with your head, it's the same thing. You go work it out. You go strengthen it. You go talk. So I don't want to talk to my wife about it. Well, your wife certainly notices. So there's a problem there if you're not talking about it. You know, at least share something. Not to say I blew somebody's head off and it was bloody, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? Hey, some things happened and it really affected me. And I'd like to get some, you know, something off my chest and things like that. Always helps out. You know, and we tell people now. And my wife brought this up. It's, it's about, you know, you would stop one of your mates from bleeding out on the battlefield. He got shot and fell right there. You'd stop him. You'd, you'd run out there and drag him to safety. Mm -hmm. But we'll stand there and watch him drink themselves to death at a bar. Or talk about miserable this and miserable that. And I'm not good enough. And you, you, you think, well, I'm going to check on Joe. you know. And then he shoots himself. And it's we have all the tools we need to do these things right and to do them correctly and to change the culture of calling it weakness. It's, it's wow, I need a little help with the horrible things I've seen. Right. I'm a human and those were horrible things and I should talk about it. That way my mind's sharp along with my body, along with my shooting, along with my CQB skills, everything's sharp. You know, she's like, would you want a soldier out there who's questionable because he's worried about his friends and he's thinking about his buddies he lost and he's getting a divorce and oh, all this other stuff in his head. I mean, I threw it all out when I was in and, uh, you know, I lost three wives to it. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't care. 
I'm a, I'm at work. My life is work. And, you know, and it's sad that, that professional athletes, high level CEOs, people who work very hard at their jobs, give up something. And that's usually the home life. And now that's usually taking care of yourself yep. and your home life. So then, okay. So then you, you retire, you leave and you're you're still not talking about it, right? So now, so now you're not in a position where um, you're going to lose that opportunity. You're not going to be in the unit anymore. Um, you're out. So, so why, so why was it all still bottled up inside? Um, and you talk in the book about you know just drinking and drinking and drinking, um, and you know, helping mask the pain that way. So, and, I, and I'm sure so many other veterans are going through this. You can't talk about it then, but you can't seem to talk about it when you're out either. I think my issue, I, I know my issue was, when I got out, I was immediately back doing contract work. Okay. I was working with special forces guys. I lived overseas in Amman, Jordan for a year and a half. Okay. I hired... 10 other special forces guys, some from the unit. I was working with other guys from the unit first. So I'm still around those guys. And I'm like, I'm not going to say anything, you know, right. I'm not going to, you know, and then when I got back and started working, um, when I got back from Jordan, that's, that's when it hit me. That's when I realized that it was more than drinking, more than partying, more than chasing women. It was, it was a lot more and I couldn't handle it. You know, I didn't have a tribe anymore. Contract work was gone. I didn't have a job. That was like what I thought retirement would be then. And, you know, you wake up and there's nothing to do. I'll go fishing. I never fished in my life. So, you know, I, I did fish, but it's not my hobby. I didn't, I didn't have hobbies. My hobby was work. My hobby was going to work. And when that was gone, that is what I see when people get out. And that's when it happened to me a year and a half later. And my mind might have been worse because I had a year and a half of overseas partying, not at home. I'm, I'm running this whole program and it's going great, making a lot of money. And life to me was good. I'm making money so I can drink all I want. As long as my job's good to go, I'm good to go. Mm -hmm. You know, and then, uh, and then when the work dried up and then when I was grabbing some work that was kind of demeaning when I thought about it in the end, I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah, I'm in the entertainment industry all of a sudden somehow trying to teach people how to be commandos and shoot zombies. I'm like, what, what am I doing? I guess my time here is up. You know, I was brought on this earth for a reason. It's up. I'm trying to make it last. And that's kind of the day I decided it, I was not ready for any of this anymore. So it didn't, um, yeah, it took a good year and a half, maybe two before the bottom fell out for me. And that's when, and even when the bottom falls out, you still don't start spilling your guts. It's like, right. still, no, 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 I'll fix it, I'll fix it, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then finally, man, I just got broken down. This woman broke me down, but you know, thanks to her strength and her loving heart and her kindness, and I don't know why she stayed with me. I asked her to leave on multiple occasions. I mean, I'd given up on myself. How could I expect her to hang around? And uh, I mean, thank God she did, but. Yeah, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. So, well, that, I mean, that's that, that's well, that's actually like true in in many more ways than one. Once you read the book, you understand. So, Jen, this is the perfect time now. Um, would love to hear your story because 
you actually do end up saving his life. Um, it, and I, I, you, if you can now kind of talk about how you met Tom and, and uh, you know, that fateful moment, um, I'll leave it with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Tom and I met during that period of time where, you know, he was just separated from his wife. Um, maybe eight months before, um, reeling in another divorce. I think that you, at that point, he was trying to reestablish a relationship with his son. Um, he was 14 at the time when I met Tom and we were on a work project and I didn't talk to Tom probably the first two times that I was on this project. Um, and so I, I didn't really know Tom. I started to get to know some of the other special forces guys that I was working with. Mm -hmm. um, but I did notice him right away. He just had this air of um, leadership that people just followed. And he never like yelled or, or anything. He just had this presence and, you know, people are goofing off over here and they need not to be, he didn't have to do anything other than look at them and just go, Hey, and they turn around and they look at them and boom, I'm like, Oh, this guy's got something. I don't know what, but um, he definitely commands a room. Um, but I, you know, my dad was Air Force, my brother Air Force, but I had very limited, neither in combat roles. So very limited um, experience with, you know, as he calls them, pipe hitters or door kickers, you know, the guys that are on the ground. And so this military world was totally different world. I came from fashion and, you know, I was doing stuff in sports marketing and I was doing um, Jack Daniels and Miller Brewing. So I was on the advertising commercial oh. sector, was asked to come in to do some special forces work. I said no three times. It's a miracle we met because I didn't want to be there. And I kept saying, no, this isn't the right job for me. And the, and the guy who was a ranger was like, oh, I already told him you were coming and right. you're on the roster. So like, just do this one job for me. And then if you don't want to do, you know, work with these clients anymore, then you don't have to. Okay. And of course I went and loved it. Um, it was really just mesmerized by what I was seeing. And so I would start to go on these realistic military training exercises and, um, for civilian and for, you know, I, I shot action a little bit, but nothing like this. I mean, there's Blackhawks so close. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of our first meetups and, and they're like, Hey, Tom's going to be assigned to walk you through the exercises. So you don't fall down a dark hole or so that, you know, you know where to go and know where to shoot. And, um, I was filming everything, uh, video at that time. So basically, um, they use the videos like sports players do after action reviews to kind of look and see where they went left instead of right, or where they made a mistake, how they can improve. Um, so there would be, countless hours it would take me about two weeks to go through my footage eight ten hours a day um i would be with teams anywhere from probably the shortest is a week and the longest was a little bit over a month and after that that's when i'm like uh, I'm 40 now <laughs> she tapped out fast <laughs> three and a half years is not fast <laughs> of uh sleeping in mosquito ridden uh warehouses and sleeping two hours a night but I loved it. I got to see a part of um, part of what they do that very few get to. So I very humble and respectful towards um, what our men and women do. And I, it's such a shame because I wish more people could see. I think we would have such a greater appreciation mm -hmm. as Americans of 
what is required, truly required to go and fight a war and to keep this country safe. I think we'd have a lot um, more humility and respect as a country for sure, because what I saw, he, he would tease me. He's like, are you crying on a mission? And I'm like, shh, shh. He's like, there's no crying. And there's no crying, <laughs> there's no crying in war. I'm like, there's an awful lot of crying in war. And, um, but, you know, it's an emotional stuff. Guys wouldn't come back from the teams that we worked with. And, you know, there'd be an iteration where we'd train them up. They'd go deploy. We'd see them maybe eight months later, ten months later. And, hey, we lost four. And you're like, oh, these aren't just SEALs or Green Berets. This is somebody's husband, mm-hmm. somebody's father, somebody's son, um, somebody's daughter. And, and it just became so powerful to me that I, I knew my place wasn't training to go to war. It never was. Um, but I felt like I could help heal on the home front. Mm-hmm. And then there's that instance where, um, where Tom is, you, you guys were going for drinks after one of the shoots. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were expecting to see him at the bar. He didn't show up. And, and you text him, what was going on there? She knew it was unusual, yeah. but it wasn't at the bar. He's <laughs> usually first, first and last. And I'm like, wait a minute. Something's wrong. Something's Tom's right. not drinking. Um, but no, I, I had kind of noticed over that day, he progressively got more quiet. Um, he just seemed off. He seemed distant. Um, and at that time, we, you know, we were barely dating and we were just kind of talking and getting to know each other. Um, but we talked enough that he was very responsive. And so when I, you know, had texted him like, where are you? What's going on? And he didn't respond. I'd wait a few minutes and I'm like, this is weird. He's usually, you know, right on the phone. And so I messaged him again, didn't hear back from him again. And then I started to get worried. And I thought, you know, I, I mean, I don't know this guy, really well, but I know him well enough to know something's not right. Right. Um, we left him, myself and uh, two or three other SF guys, left him in the parking garage because he said he was going to make a phone call. And so I was just getting ready to text his best friend and a good friend of mine to say, can you meet me in the lobby? We need to go to the car. Like, I don't, I, or to Tom's room, can you check? I don't know where he is. Um, and so I texted one more time. I'm like, if we were going to meet in the lobby, like, hey, you're late. Everybody's here. We're all down in the lobby. I just, where are you? And then I got text back on my way. I'm like, Oh, and I remember him coming to the bar and I'm like, it's everything. And he's like, Oh, I was on a call. Sorry. I, you know, he didn't tell me what he was doing, which was trying to decide to put the pistol in his mouth or the side of his head. And that was the only thought process really that was going through his mind. And, um, I didn't learn about that for months, months later. That's what really was happening and not a phone call. She knew how to get my attention. <laughs> You're late. You're late. You're late. And I'm like, oh, no, hell no, I'm not. I'm not going to be late. So, yeah, you, you really did uh, save his life there. And then, so you guys ended up uh, getting married. And how did, you know, at that point, um, you know, the, the post-traumatic stress is really starting to, you know, show, you know, rear its ugly head. And how, how, how did that affect your marriage? Well, I, we almost were divorced before we even turned the paperwork. 
think we got married on us. A... Great story. Yeah, we got we got married on a Friday, and I was like, I'm not turning the paperwork in on Monday. Right. And uh, you know, I think that was so often people have to hit rock bottom before they get help, and it's such a shame that you know, and that's what we do now is trying to catch people before put the shovel down. You don't need to go all the way down. Um, but Tom, true to himself burns everything down like everything goes to I told Tom like you don't have it goes to 10 like for you it goes to like 136 like your dial is just way it's there or it's zero or negative 20 you know so um the drinking and then he started lying about the drinking to cover the drinking and the anger, the anger was just present and it was present pretty early on in our relationship. So by the time our, we got married, we were already together for two years at this point. Um, and I was already at that time thinking, what am I signing myself up for? You know, what am I getting into? Because this guy that I love and I care about has some serious problems. And what's worse about it is he won't admit it. Right. You know, I, I even said like, picking out my book, do you have post-traumatic stress disorder? You know, I'm barely knowing What's what I'm that? talking about. And he's like, no, I don't have that. You know, and I'm like reading the pages of mom sounds a lot like Tom. Like, I think they wrote this book about you. Sure. That's not a special operations. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, that was just his mindset. And so on our wedding night, he drank the bar dry and I knew it. It was just and one of the things that happens with post-traumatic stress is any perceived chaos, the brain can't decipher if it's a real thing or if it's perceived. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like Tom had been talking about this muscle memory, muscle memory, um, and how well trained he was that half of the stuff he was doing, he didn't even know he was doing really. I mean, it's, it's how he reacted. It was natural for him. Um, so, you know, and, and his ex-wife and him had a volatile relationship. There's a lot of fighting. And I'm very like, hey, laid back girl. So I'm like, I don't like this. I don't like to fight. I don't like yelling. I don't like anger. I don't like when it shows up. And um, on our wedding night, he went too far. And the next morning, I was like, A, you get help, professional help, or B, where you're going to just tear up this certificate from the beach on Friday night, not turning it in. And I'm done. I'm going back to St. Louis. You stay in Savannah. Have a great, well, you know, have a great life. But you've got she two meant choices. It. I was done. She that was meant it. Everywhere. Line in the sand, and he picked um he mm. picked option one to go get help. And Monday morning he was at it, and literally from that point in time, it's not like we didn't have setbacks or we didn't have challenges because we had a lot. Mm -hmm. And that that first year was so difficult. And I joke, and I talk to my friends who are civilians, married to civilians, and and they talk about how tough it is to go into that second marriage with kids and all the complexities and it's like you throw a war in on top of it and boom. So, but I will say, you know, once he started that first therapy, which was anger management therapy, we didn't know, you know, like where we were treating each of the symptoms versus looking at it holistically. Right. And this doctor who was Eric Clapton's doctor uh, has a clinic in Savannah and was recommended amazing guy. And he was the first to kind of tell him like, yeah, think you might have PTS. I, yeah, you know, you do. So let's start working with that and put anger in a way that he understood it for the first time. I mean, he, he was lit up like a Christmas tree when I saw him the next time. I mean, within two weeks, it was two weeks before our wedding until I saw him the next time. And already I was like, 
wow, you know, like instead of drinking 10 drinks a night, you might've been drinking five and right. started walking again. And just somebody had explained to him what was going on that he couldn't explain himself. And that kind of acknowledgement, that kind of, Hey, it's not your fault. This is biologically hope. what's happening. It was hope. It was, I can fix this then. If I know what it is, I can fix right. it. I can tackle it. But not knowing what it was or what's going on with me, why am I so angry? It's the number one question we get out of hundreds and hundreds of special operation warriors is why am I so angry? Toggle, they toggle and I toggle between acceptance and confusion as to why I'm angry. And then, well, I'm angry because I'm a commando. Uh, well, but why am I always so angry? Well, well, I'm a warrior, right? So uh, it's so much confusing. And I see it go back and forth between in my friends and other people I don't even know. It's the same story every time. Why am I so angry? And then you see them touting on social media or something about, well, we have to bring violence. And I'm like, man, you're, you're missing it again. You're on the other side again. Right. Back over here. <laughs> understand it. Back over here and understand it. It's a so, constant. We, we've fallen back the whole time. But you know what? You get back up and start again. So. And then... Jen, at some point you decide, you know what, you're, you know, you want to start doing this like full time. You, you go and get, um, you go into health coaching and you, you start helping other uh, special ops veterans. Like, you know, when, so like, tell me, tell, tell me about that. Like what, all of a sudden, obviously you, you're dealing with Tom here and, you know, amaz some amazing things are happening. Um, why then go like, to the, you know, to the nth degree. Now I'm going to help everybody. And uh, how does that happen? What happens? And, and before she starts, I just read six chapters of her book today. I probably cried 12 times. <laughs> um, she's almost done with it, but wow. Uh, it's the spouse's side of things. So this is like what she did for me in a book now. And I mean, I, I picked it up to read it today. She's wow. not done with it yet, like four more chapters, but I'm, I plunged through six today and I don't like to read anymore. I've been reading so much and, and uh, I knocked it out. I'm like, wow. I mean, some's about me, but because I know why she's going, what she's going through. Mm -hmm. I'm like, man, and reading it, it was healing for me again today to see some of the stuff. She kept coming out and be crying. She's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> when we take that out, I'm like, I did it. And wow. it's helping me. And I'm crying because I'm so proud of you for being able to do that and put it down because people, you know, when you put your crap out there in your dirty laundry, I haven't had a lot because I'm a guy and you know, the people that talk, well, I'm going to talk about certain chapters Tom wrote, but now I love the, you know, how you did this and that. Her book's all going to be about the heart and the emotions and the, and the sad side of it. And, uh, wow. I hope, I hope <laughs> not just wives pick her book up, but anyway, I wanted to brag on that because that's what she's been doing the entire time. Yeah. I think for me, um, I've always loved service. Like I was the kid when I was, my mom was just laughing about it. She's like, what 12 year old gets asked to drop off at the nursing home every Saturday. But I did. I, I would go to the nursing home every Saturday and um, I volunteered and basically I would go and sit and listen to people talk. And so I had my favorites and I would go to the room and listen to them talk. And then I was a candy striper and then yeah, I've always done service. And mm -hmm. so, um, and, and love nonprofit work and really was looking for a home because film and photography and advertising I had done for 15 years. And I had gotten to that point, I think where so many people get to like, this isn't really for me anymore. I, I picked this when I was 20, you know, I'm, I'm 40 now and 
this just really isn't running around with these guys was cool. And, and I, you know, got to ride in Blackhawks and Chinooks and shoot weapons and do all the cool stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't my heart and it wasn't my place. You know, like he would say, we train up for war. I said, I don't train up anything. I carry the camera. You know, this isn't, I don't know what's going on here. I just try my best and have my little notebook of acronyms that had gotten worn at the edges because I'm always like six pages by the time a meeting's done. And I'm like, what? I, I just, and he's like, Hey, what, what, what was that one? What's that one? It's like, don't worry about the acronyms. Nobody else knows either. She was the only one that knew the acronyms because she'd go look them up. I was totally nerdy about it. I go, nobody knows what those are. There's like unit are. Delta guys that are like, what is that? And I'm like, it's such and such and such and such. And they're like, what? And I'm like, it's just nerdy, like perfectionism here. But, um, wow. but I got to know the guys, really, frankly, that's what it came down to. And I loved them. And, you know, he would start looking better. You know, he was probably 260 when I met him, he got down to 200 pounds. So, you know, he was fit again. He, you know, drinking became a, a social thing versus a self-medicating thing. Right. He is, you know, he just, people commented constantly. What is Tom doing? What is Tom doing? You know, he's happy. He's smiling. He doesn't look like he wants to kill someone 24 seven. Like, you know, what are you, how is he getting this way? And I would get so excited. I'm like, Oh, I found this new regiment or, Oh, you've got to try this therapy or read this book. And I found myself, like I told him, I was like, I want to just talk to all the guys and help them instead of carrying the camera gear around. And so for about a year, I'm like, we gotta, we gotta share what's working for you with others. Because I will tell you as a girlfriend turned spouse, um, I, and I used to say, Oh, it's because I'm a veteran spouse. It's because I wasn't raised up with as a wife, you know, 18 or 22 and then you know spending my life in the military I'm like oh this must be a veteran wife thing like we don't know um what's going on with our guys and then I started talking to active duty wives and they're like I don't know what's going on with my husband I don't know who he is I don't know how to deal with him I'm thinking about leaving him I'm like whoa 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 like you're you're 26 and you're 28 yeah but is you know he's this way or that way I'm like I know how to help. Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, don't, don't call it quits yet. I, there's hope and there's help. And then people would you know, call after a deployment and I'm like, okay, this is it. Like I'm spending more time of my day trying to help people. I went to health coaching school um, because I knew, because I watched these guys for three years and I'm like, they don't sleep. They don't eat well. I mean, yeah, they're built, but they're eating out of gas stations during training. They're, you know, and some guys were very like, you know, had their macro meals. I'm not saying all, but there was a lot of stuff. And I'm like, dude, you're drinking four energy drinks a day. Like they cause heart attacks for people your age. Stop it. You know? And, and so once we started learning, you know, the, the health side of things and started correcting some of the things, our combat warriors are so nutrient de uh, deficient, like the minerals and stuff. When I would tell guys, I'm like, go have your doctor test and see where you're at. And they would call me back. They're like, the doctor freaked out. I'm like, yeah, because he's not a military doctor, right? He doesn't see a lot of you because you're living in Ohio, you know, but right. if you were in Fort Bragg, they would, you know, yeah, of course, you don't have any magnesium it's or normal. adrenal fatigue. And so that's why, you know, I did that was to understand the spiritual side of thing of talking mm -hmm. to a Catholic priest tomorrow. So it's like, I'm always searching and looking for all different aspects of body, mind, soul. Wow. So um, 
then you take it again to another level. So you guys decide to start a foundation. And that's, that's the impetus for uh, the All Secure Foundation. So let's talk about that now. Tell us about the All Secure Foundation, what it is, what you guys do there. Let's, let's yeah. delve into that. She's the mastermind. She, uh, <laughs> she told me we need to do a nonprofit. I go, I go, what? <laughs> what? Start a business? Do what? I don't even know what I'm doing. She's like, we'll figure it out. So literally she spent two years figuring it out. I mean, I continued to work and train. She pulled back and I continued to work and train. Um, and so we could pay the bills and eat and, uh, you know, we put our own money into it and she just spent two years building it up. And, um, yeah, I would say like really being able to be with teams and getting to know them in different groups and whether it was a green beret team or seal team or ranger, mm -hmm. I started seeing the consistencies and started kind of using that time as surveying people. Hey, where do you feel there's a lack of help? Where do you feel like you need the most help? Where do you feel like the army doesn't have you and you need outside help or where, where can we help be that catch? And so I started, you know, with health and nutrition because that's, where I had just gone to school. So I was like, oh, do you want to learn about magnesium and all of these things that can help your mind? And they're like, well, yeah, yeah, that would help. Um, but what I really heard nine times out of 10 was I need help at home. I'm going to get another divorce. I need help at home. My kids, I, I can't relate with them. You know, I, I don't have a relationship with them. I want to, but I don't know how to. And, um, and so nine times out of 10. And that's why we decided at All Secure Foundation, we will focus on the family. We will focus on healing the warrior. 80% of combat veterans who are going through PTS therapy, 80% of them say they want more involvement with their families. They want their wives at the appointments. They want the um, additional help and support. And so where the Army, I think, had it wrong was like, go to your appointment during work or go to your appointment here. And the family's over here and there's no connection between the two. We send, um, so part of what we do is that reconnection on the home front. How do you come back together post dozens of deployments and you know years of physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain? How, and by the way, your wife has that same kind of pain and she, it might show up as resentment. We see a lot of resentment, a lot of depression yeah. and a lot of anxiety. Okay. And so, you know, really when Tom's friend went off to Warrior's Heart to get help, he was gone for 14 weeks and I kept saying, who's taking care of his wife and kids? Cause everyone's like, isn't this great? Teddy's getting better. I'm like, yeah, I love Teddy. I love him with my whole heart, but he's got two kids and a wife at home. And so he's off getting help and who's helping her. And everyone just looked at me like, well, the veterans getting and help. And when he goes home, who's helping them, right? Like, is he going to relapse because right? the trouble at home is just as bad sure. versus, versus the couple, right? Now you have your battle buddy at home. Now you have your spouse that knows what's going on, knows what's, what's hurting you, and you know what's hurting them. You can help each other versus one at a time or, or just the one, just, just the veteran, you know. I think it's great when people send uh, veterans to places and to thank Absolutely. them, but it's a couple's, it's a couple's thing if you're married that, that they've had to deal with it too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, spouses, I've met some of the strongest, most intelligent, hardworking, would never ask for a thing from anybody else, spouses, that I'm like, you've served this country just as much. I mean, you know, I was never a military wife. I wasn't gone. You know, he, he had to deploy four months after his son was born. 
um, in an incident where his wife almost died in childbirth. I can't imagine four months after that situation, he's like going to Bosnia, wow. you know, yet she did it. And, and so many of it. these spouses do that. So many just do it and they just, you know, they make it work. So, you know, we have so much gratitude towards military spouses for everything they do, um, everything they have to put up with on the home front because it's not pretty. And so they deserve the help as well. And as a couple, when you come together, the healing's quicker. Um, people know what's going on. It's not my treatment, your treatment. It's right. an us thing. And then, you know, we've been doing this for a good solid year where we've put them through a type of therapy that Tom and I went through. Results speak for themselves. People are, are doing great. We get calls every single day. You know, this program works. I can't believe how simple it was. And that's the thing that we really try to get into everybody's head is the hardest part of all of it is picking up that 10,000 pound phone and asking for help. That's the hardest thing. Or, or calling a friend or reaching out and saying, I need help. That's the hardest part. Once you do that, the stuff that follows it you right. know how to train. You know yeah. how to retrain. You can do this stuff. Helps the easy part. Like, yeah. Yeah. Getting, getting people to admit they might need to work on something or that they need to focus on something different or to have them call you, like she said, and just, just say those words. Many of those phone calls start off with just sobbing. <laughs> and all I can say, you know, she said it, I said it. Just let it go. I'm here. You know, 10 minutes later, it's like words start to come out and it's, man, I know how good that feels. I know how good that feels to just, I don't have to say anything, but I'm so happy I'm doing it. I'm just going to ball right now. And then. In fact, you did when we talked about Somalia for the first time. Yeah, I know the feeling. I wasn't on the phone. I was on a street cafe <laughs> in the middle of St. Louis, but it was a little different. But it's the same thing. It's, it's the feeling of, wow, somebody cares enough to want to hear my story. All you have to do is listen. Mm -hmm. You know, people are like, I want to help. How can I help? You know, I don't know how to help. And, and I don't know how to help. And he's or I don't know how to talk to a veteran. I don't know how to talk to veterans. We, people up at, up at Congress asked us this. We, we don't get a lot of veterans. If we don't, we don't know how to talk to them. Oh, they're humans. You, you don't say, hey, what's wrong with you? <laughs> or hi, do you have post-traumatic stress? I, I, I share my stories of failure right up, right up front. And then as soon as it's okay, they'll do it. They'll tell you. And then they'll tell you what's bothering them. They'll tell you what's going on. And then that's the easy part to figure out. Yeah. If, if someone, so if, if a veteran calls you um, and they say, I need help, like, what do you do? Like, I know, you, I, you know, I've, I've looked at uh, All Secure. It seems they got some programs that, so how does that work? We'll, I immediately start talking to them or she'll immediately start talking to them um, just to find out what's going on. Just, hey, what's, yeah, up? What's, your what's your family? Where's your station? I try to get as much information. I don't need to hear the story that's bothering you. If it's, I, I lost a friend. <laughs> I lost a friend here or there. I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't need I, to hear the story because I, like the stories. <laughs> stories are I want to know how do you feel right now and how can we get you feeling better? All those stories for me right now are, are just a comparison between, you know, you get veterans together telling stories. That's because it's two veterans. Yeah. You know, so put me on the phone. Like, Alice. I, I don't need your story right now, but how you feeling, man? You know, cause stories are hard to get through sometimes. If they leave with the story, I listen. I don't, I don't guide it as much as just listen. Okay. And, and if they need help, I mean, I'm immediately on the phone with them and my our therapist and we'll connect them and we'll get, we'll pay for their session. So that's what we're doing right now for people. Um, 
wow. that reach out to us. We're paying for the sessions. They get up to three sessions, um, either Zoom, Skype, or phone call, whatever they want to do uh-huh. with our therapist. While our therapist is researching how to get them, how local, to get help. them local help where they're at with a good therapist. Um, and then she'll transfer all that information over. They can continue on. Just talking has helped so many people. I've had people say, I don't need any more sessions. She's amazing. You guys are awesome. I just needed to talk. And I can't believe that you guys also feel the same way. I don't feel weird anymore. Now I know where to go. Now I know it's okay. And I'm like, well, it's that easy. It's literally that easy. And I, you know, for me, I, one of the greatest things somebody can do is tell their story. And that's where we always joke about this. Cause like, I don't care about your story. I'm like, I care about your story. <laughs> you know, like you call me and you tell me and I, he's come in the room and I've been sobbing or laughing or whatever else, because it is so important um, to be heard and to feel like the things that you did overseas matters. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's a fantastic book called tribe by Sebastian Junger. And it's a short read. It's a little tiny book. I thought I had it right here. Very fast. Uh, but it it's, dances around my house because I we've both read it millions of times. And it's just um, comparing the Native American experience with our soldiers and how different the cultures were and, and why they don't have warrior suicide in their culture. Why wasn't that a thing? And why do we have 22 a day? What's happening? What, what is the disconnect? Right. So much of what, and I had the pleasure of talking to the author um, last Friday and I had asked him about some of this and he said, you have to tell your story. You have to, and not to another warrior. The warriors didn't sit around like he was talking about veterans don't want to sit around and be like, well, I shot up this and, but I did this and I, you know, that can, that can actually happen. We've seen it happen. Um, so we're like, you know, let's mix a little, um, let's mix a little civilian in here and it worked. And that's exactly what Sebastian had said in, in these tribes, the warriors would come back and they would ceremoniously tell all their stories of the battle. And they would tell these community members that they essentially saved from their doom about what happened. Good, bad, sad. It wasn't victorious or bragging. It was, this is right. my story. Um, the next day that warrior was chopping wood back to the community, was treated no different, no higher accolades than anyone else. He told the story. Now we're back to a functioning community. And then look at the way we handle our warriors. They come home and really home means you're in Afghanistan at noon one day and you're in your bed, you know, 48 hours later. Right. There's no right. time to decompress from war. And then they're told to be quiet, don't say anything, don't talk about it. Um, even if it's not said, that's just kind of, that's the culture. And so that story never gets out and it just keeps compiling and compiling, compiling. And when I noticed with Tom, his first breakthrough happened telling his story. That's all it was, was telling his story. And when people are like, how can I help a veteran? I'm like, listen to his story. You don't have to like walk up to somebody and be like, Hey, uh, how many people did you kill or what? You know, something tactless about it, but right. Um, and people have asked, well, how do you approach about a story? Not every veteran's gone off to war and, and has big combat stories and things like that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there's thousands of jobs. So, but if you want to help and, and you know someone who might be suffering, you have to say, like, how can I help you? It's like I'd love to hear about your experiences if you want to share them. I'd love to hear. You know, and and there's times where I, I'll say that on a phone call with a veteran, and it'll be four and a half hours later. Wow. I probably laughed or cried a little in there, but it's not my job as the listener. 
you know, is to receive that message. I, I give the tough love. The yeah, often the, I'm like, you know, I've cheated on my wife for the fourth time. Can you help me get her back? And I go, why do you want her back? <laughs> what do you mean? I go, you cheated on her four times. I mean, if she'll take you back, why would you go back? Maybe you don't want to be with her. No, I want to be with her. And I go, then stop cheating. Right. Stop cheating. And then let's talk about, now put me back on the phone and I'll explain reckless behavior in PTS. <laughs> I'll tell you what to quit and doing. And why you're doing it. She'll tell you why you need to quit doing it. <laughs> and then you also give them, like, so there's also nutritional um, mm -hmm. consulting that you do for them because how well it worked for Tom, obviously. Yeah. So you have that kind of program going on for them as well. Yeah, it's free online, allsecurefoundation.org. Um, under programs tab, it's six-week mind and body reset. And that's based on Dr. Hyman. He's a clinical um, leader. People see him in every documentary. He's, he's the head of the Cleveland Clinic um, and the Ultra Wellness okay. Center. So this diet is based on his diet. I didn't make anything up. So this is okay. what worked for Tom. Um, I reached out to them, asked permission. They gave it to us, So, which I think is great. You know, We offer it for free. It's like a 58-page download. Talks about everything that Tom did in, even in Delta Force. Like when he talked about, you, you mentioned that mind mapping or mm -hmm. that visualization. Mm -hmm. how, how you can do that for retraining your brain in a positive way. Um, meditation techniques, uh, how to sleep better. Sleep is the building block of, of health. And none of our soldiers are getting any sleep. So it walks you through how to take your health back. Um, and so we, so it's, we yeah. attack it on multiple levels. And... Since we started out as a resource library um, to where you yeah. can just come to our foundation and just find resources that you need, we still have those on there as well. We grew from there, but we still have resources for transition. Here's, here's a website that's great for transition. You know, So I don't like to turn people who when they call me and ask me things, hey, I'm not a special ops guy, but I have these problems. Or my, you know, or I'm like, what do you got, man? What, just talk to me now. I mean, I, I might as well yeah, practice never anyway. You don't turn anybody away. And they're like, why do you, why do, you do just special operations? Uh, number one, that's what I know. Number two, that's about as big as we can handle. Right. You know, and if I had enough money, I'd do the entire military. But then, you know, I'd be the VA and ineffective. You, you can't. You have to be small. People right. have told us over and over again when they've called us, which I need to start asking people, why don't you call us first? But twice... Was it three? Okay, twice last week, I got two different messages. Tom, I, I need some help. I've called three different organizations, and I've talked to two, you know, two CEOs, of the, and I answer right back. We're small enough, you know, that we can, I can get right we back reacted. to you. Mm -hmm. I'll get right on it. I don't care what time it is. Um, we're not a 911 number, all right? We're not those people. Mm -hmm. But we're responsive, and we care. And, I mean, that was twice last week about people, I can't believe you got me a therapist right away. That's what we do. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we do marriage retreats whenever we're able to get back together again. We've canceled them this year. I mean, we have two scheduled out of eight still this year. Okay. The rest have rolled the next, to 2021. But we were going to shift to online programming as well, not only, but as well later in the year. So all we've done, we've shifted and done that now. We're working on that now. Okay. We've redone our website, which should hopefully be up soon. Um, which then will add our online programs that we're going to go through our courses that we do during our weekend retreats. So everybody can do it from anywhere. If they're ashamed to ask for help, they can quietly, they can quietly do it at home and do the same things we do on these retreats. The six week mind body reset. We start with the body. 
if your brain and your gut are off, you're going to be off. So let's get you right while we're getting you right. You know, we teach awareness and we teach the techniques and the tools to help you overcome and fix whatever it is that's, you know, and that's why that we, to be your issue. And that's why, you know, I've been so impressed by the responsiveness of the DOD lately. We, We've been, we're going to Air Force Special Operations, two different bases for them. Yeah, I forgot that. August, September, and then uh, we go to Fort Bragg a lot with the brand new Green Berets and kind of do PTS resiliency training. Um, then in the evenings, we meet with the spouses and do PTS resiliency training. So, so that would be that's, kind of important. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. So you're, you're, you're in, you, so, so you're getting in there early now. Yes. So that you don't have to go through what Tom Yes. We, we yes. spoke to the new x-ray soldiers who came in and haven't gone to anything in the Army yet. We've yeah. spoken to the ones who just got back from jump school. We've spoken to the, you know, at the same time, the groups that are just starting selection to the groups that are just starting the Q course. And there was groups in there that just finished the Q course as well. And there was like about 500 of them, 450 to 500 of them in the room. And just said, listen, I know you're not listening to me because you young kids don't ever listen. Right. But one day this is going to happen to you and it'll be in the back of your mind. Tom and Jen said this, keep this here. We're going to keep coming back four times. What, four to six. And, and then hopefully that question isn't why am I so angry all the time? It's I understand there's a biological thing that's happening. I remember them kind of talking about it. Maybe not all the details, but oh, this is I, I understand why I'm at. Now I can go get help for that versus, well, I don't understand what's going on with me. Nobody likes to say, well, I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, can you help me? Why? I don't know. Yeah. So we want to educate like this, this is what it is. You talk yeah. about that. It, yeah. You, you, you mentioned how this isn't like a, a lot of people think this is, you, that's why you don't like referring to it as a disorder, right? right. It's, it's a, it's, it's apparently a biological reaction to the stress that you're under. And it's a whole ca cascade of hormones right. and, co and cortisol, right? Yeah. That stress hormone. Yeah. Fight or flight or freeze. And that, that little, switch never turns off for them. So when, when you're in that fight, flight, or freeze constantly and somebody spills the milk, fight. You know, for me, I don't go into fight, flight, or freeze. I've never had that kind of trauma where I need to react that way. However, if you are muscle memory trained to react with aggression, violence, and, and, and speed, this right. has got to get fixed, it's got to get fixed now, boom. He doesn't think that, well, I handle that rudely, or I was aggressive, or I was talking to you like a soldier. I'm always like, I'm not your soldier. Don't talk to me that way. I was unaware. She's like, don't talk to me that way. I go, what way? But you sound angry at me. I go, I'm just talking, like right now. If I'm passionate, I'm talking. It's like, well, you seem kind of overbearing and large. And, and that's like, one of my favorite things to do with the wife. So I'm like, all right, who's ever said I'm not your soldier? And I'm like, oh, me. <laughs> Everyone's like, mm -hmm, it's yeah. Like, it's like running into a room. We, we, we do first responders too. So we spoke to some park rangers and cops and SWAT guys this week. Or yeah, this week? last week. After, I don't know. I don't know um, what day it is anymore. <laughs> wow. And I said, you guys don't understand. First, you have to check yourself. You have to be self-aware. I go, if you go run into a room screaming, everybody calm down. <laughs> is anybody going to calm down? They're going to ramp up to what you're doing. So self-awareness, and, and, and it's so important for everything. Self-awareness of me getting angry. Self-awareness of my presence. Self-awareness of the fact that I've got a Kevlar on and a badge and a gun and a, you know, and a taser and dogs barking. Oh, oh, I'm intimidating. No wonder people don't like me anymore. Now, I'm not saying mess with cops. I'm saying 
you know, no defund the police kind of thing. And I'm not getting political, but this is like retraining, mm-hmm. retraining. That's humans, what we say. They need retraining. We don't tell them you have PTSD and you need to go see a therapist. It's like, hey, talk to her friend Stacy. She's amazing. She's gonna she's a golden unicorn. We're gonna talk about retraining your muscle memory. We're gonna give you tools to work on, so you'll have them in your tool bag for down the road when you need it. We're gonna give you different things to pull out that you want whenever you need it, and and they love that. It's it's not like you're sick and you need help. It's mm-hmm. let's retrain you because the last twenty years of your life has been this direction. It's right. gonna take you a while to turn that ship, you know, and get yeah. going in the direction you want. So I, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, and this is, I mean, the conversation has been so enlightening and, and, and fascinating. I got to ask, given everything that's happened, Tom, um, would you do it all over again? Would you go back, if, knowing what you know now and what you've been through? Would you, would you join up? Would you, would you join the unit again? Yeah. Yeah, I certainly would. I would hope I would bring the new changes with me, but if I had to repeat everything over again, yeah, I would. It got me here. You know, I wouldn't want to deviate. You look at that butterfly effect. So yeah, I would do, I would do it again. Um, hopefully I would be able to do it again with tools, mm-hmm. you know, change some of my decisions and uh, help some people along the way. But yeah, uh, yeah I'd do it again. That was the longest pause, by the way, he has ever had when asked if he would ever go back. So it's usually, heck yeah. Well, I want to think about it because my mind's changing as I'm getting further away. And uh, a lot of times people ask me about, well, what was it like? So I have to think back then what I thought then versus my story now. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't make sense. You know, it's uh, evolution. I was a different person when I joined. I'm a different person again now. Well, I think... um, what really sums a lot of this up is in the book um, when you're ha- when you're speaking to the congressional staffers uh, and you're, um, you're you're giving a speech. You're letting you you know you're kind of enlightening them on what you guys go through. And here's what you, here's what you said. You said we all volunteer to serve our country, and I hold a great reverence for it and pride in knowing I gave the very best of myself in those 25 years, 20 of them in the unit. Please hear me when I say to you that we are not done. We want more than to come home. We want to heal. We want to rebuild our lives, our relationships, and offer the leadership we've shouldered over the years to the homes and communities we live in now. That's such a powerful powerful statement and uh i think it really sums up what what you guys are doing what you're all about um how so for for anyone who's interested in learning more about about uh you jen and 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 tom and your story and uh the all secure foundation where do they go so allsecurefoundation.org and uh, allsecurefoundation.org is, uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, it's All Secure Foundation as well. Okay. Um, so yeah, please, please, and we have a contact. <laughs> the contact literally goes right to me. I, I filter everything out through. So when people are sharing information, it's, it's private. Yeah, we get everything. If, if you want a book, if you need help, if you want uh, resources, a t-shirt. you want a t-shirt, a hat, <laughs> um, whatever's on there. You, know, you want to make a donation. Everything is right there. 
okay. so people can get or give right away. Um, and we're, we are responsive. I mean, you can email us and we, it comes straight to us. People have my number or on social media. We see it right away. We monitor all that. Um, it's a little busy, but we know what's going on and we can help people versus, you know, we're off on the beach living life and someone else is running the foundation. We don't know what's going on. So we, right. Does that happen? I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> maybe in eight years, I hope, but we're pretty hands on. Um, you know, we love to help and we, we, we both lived it. So what better place to hear the story from than those who lived it. Absolutely. Amazing stuff, guys. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Uh, and it's, it's an honor and a privilege uh, to have you on the show. And Tom, thank you so much for your service. Um, and Jen, thank you. Thank you for your service, what you're doing for these guys. Uh, they're heroes to a lot of us. And uh, to know that you are having such a positive effect on their lives is uh, it's just an amazing thing. So God bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We appreciate you having us on because anytime we have the ability to reach more people, we love it. Thank That's you. fantastic. Thank you, guys.